starting a new series uh, called Witnesses today. Excited about it. Um, the book of Acts, not the whole book of Acts, but we're going to do part of the kind of the launching of the church. You can follow along on version on your app or mobile device. Look under live events, Preston Crest, follow along there, or just use your bulletin to follow along as we begin our Witnesses series today. It was just after 6 p.m., on November the 5th, 2011, when Derek Broaddus, a freshman at the University of Tennessee, was lying on the couch at his frat house waiting for the Tennessee Volunteers football game to begin at 7 p.m. And just then, less than an hour before kickoff, His phone began to vibrate, and he answered a rather shocking phone call. Um, He was told that the Tennessee head coach was sending a police escort to the frat house to rush Derek to the football stadium. Derek thought, this has got to be a dream. I'm just lying on the couch relaxing. I answer the phone. They tell me I need to come to the stadium right away. Um, Here's what happened. Ten minutes before his phone rang, the Tennessee backup kicker pulled a muscle during pregame warm-ups. The volunteers had already lost their main kicker the week before through an injury at practice. So 45 minutes, 45 minutes before kickoff, the Tennessee volunteers had literally run out of kickers. Derek had tried out for the team. He had tried to walk on to the Tennessee Volunteers football team, had not made the team, but that call changed everything. He was their only option. Minutes after the phone call, sure enough, this police escort shows up there at the frat house to rush him to the stadium. The trainers stretched him out, put a jersey on him without a name on the back, of course, And then in front of 102,000 rabid fans, Broadus took center stage. During the game, he would make all three extra point attempts, and he would even kick a 21-yard field goal. The Vols won the game 24-0. And back in the locker room after the game, the head coach would give Derek Broadus the game ball as all of his teammates cheered. And I tell that story, first of all, because... It's football season, ladies and gentlemen. Who doesn't love this time of year? Isn't it great? Um, And who doesn't love also, who doesn't love an underdog story? And I think this one qualifies as Derek Broaddus goes from couch potato to star performer in a matter of minutes. Well, this morning, as we look into Acts chapter 2, the launching of the church, we are going to see another call, and this one is still echoing today in this very place. How will I answer the call? How will we answer the call of God? The main text will be in Acts 2, verses 29 to th- uh, 22 to 29. Um, it is recorded for us by Luke. Luke was a medical doctor, uh, a follower of Jesus, and the, the preeminent early church historian. 
Uh, Luke has contributed two volumes to our New Testaments. The first, of course, is the Gospel of Luke, where he gives a bit of a biography of, of the life and ministry of Jesus. Volume 2, the book of Acts, is the history of the earliest days of the Christian church. And in this second volume, the book of Acts, Luke is going to record for us uh, a very important sermon in Acts chapter 2, uh, the sermon by the Apostle Peter that is, uh, one of the reasons it's so important is it is the first sermon preached after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But before we get there, and so I need you to pay attention, be fully awake, pay attention, engage your mind and heart as we look at some background information. To really get the most out of Peter's sermon, we've got to know what was going on there in Acts chapter 2. And the first thing we need to talk about is the idea of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Both Jesus and John the Baptist shared this as one of the principal themes in their preaching and teaching ministries. The kingdom of God. And both Jesus and John the Baptist said something very similar. They told their audiences, the kingdom of God is near. Right? It's very close. The kingdom is near. And Israel, the Jewish people, had been waiting for the coming of this kingdom for centuries. Um, they were very interested. And Jesus and John the Baptist both tell them, it's almost here. It, it's, it's very, very near. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, remember, after Jesus is resurrected, he spends about 40 days kind of teaching and talking with and continuing the training of his disciples before he ascends into heaven. So in Acts chapter 1, during this training period, we find out something about what Jesus was doing in these 40 days. Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Luke records this. After his suffering, he showed himself, Jesus, to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about what? The kingdom of God. That again, same theme. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. It was a big, big deal to Israel. It was what they longed for. In fact, remember this, when Jesus was alive, a group actually tried to make him king. By force. Jesus would have none of it, but they actually tried to, to put him on the throne by force. So there they were with Jesus in the weeks following his glorious resurrection from the dead, and they're talking with Jesus, or rather, Jesus is talking with them about the kingdom of God. Um, they knew that he had preached that it was near. Now he's still talking about the kingdom of God, and they're thinking, is this the moment? Is, is this the moment in history when it's going to be launched? Verses 6 to 8 in Acts chapter 1. So they met together and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the kingdom was just about to come with great power. In fact, the, the coming of the kingdom is so imminent, he says, don't even leave Jerusalem. It's all going to start right here. Stay put, and you'll see the kingdom come with power. Um, they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem. They would be his witnesses in Judea, in Samaria. And Jesus says they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. By the way, I think we get a clue here that Jesus is not just talking to that group. Okay, because yeah, they would take the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea, which is the area around, and to Samaria. They would not, that group would not take the gospel to the ends of the earth. They never went to China. Okay, they never went to North America. They never went to sub-Saharan Africa. And so I think we get a hint that Jesus is talking to them, but not just to them. Okay. When Jesus is talking about being witnesses, he's also talking to us. Okay? So, the kingdom. Huge expectation of the Jewish people. Now, to me, one of the most amazing prophecies in the Old Testament is a prophecy from the book of Daniel, chapter 2. In fact, if you have your questions about the Bible, whether or not it's inspired or it's just another book put together by people, um, this would be a good place to at least consider because some pretty remarkable um, prophecy, future foretelling is going on in Daniel chapter 2, and it comes from a vision, a dream, that a pagan king had. The guy's name is King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, which, by the way, when we were living in, 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 in Brazil, I don't know that any word was more difficult to say in Portuguese than this guy's name, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar. And we were doing VBS, or I don't know, I was teaching the children's class or something, and we were telling the story of Ohei Nabucodonosor. I remember having to practice that for a long time. Anyway, just saying. So it's even easier in English. Um, so this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, calls in one of his servants, a fellow named Daniel, who is a Hebrew. And he knows that Daniel has this gift of being able to interpret visions and dreams. So he says, Daniel, let me tell you about my dream, and I want you to interpret it. The dream went like this. Nebuchadnezzar's dreaming, and before him he sees this gigantic, uh, dazzling statue. Think like the Statue of Liberty. Uh, this massive statue. Um, the statue is it's a little bit weird because it's not like made of marble or granite. Or, or bronze. It is actually a composite of different materials from the head down to the feet. The head was pure gold. The arms and the upper body were silver. Um, the belly down to the, 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 the thighs was, was, uh, was bronze. And then the feet were, were two things. They were made of iron and baked clay. And as he's watching in this dream, he's watching this beautiful, dazzling statue, he notices um, this boulder, this large stone, comes rolling toward the statue. 
it smashes into the statue, collides with this statue, and basically just knocks it to smithereens. I mean, it is, it is turned into powder. A wind comes and actually blows it away like dust. It just blows away. And so then the only thing left in the king's dream is this big boulder. And it begins to grow and grow and grow. And it becomes this, this gigantic mountain. He wakes up and he's thinking, what did all of that mean? So he brings in Daniel and Daniel says... Here's what it means, and we get this remarkable prophecy about actual historical events that we know came true over the coming centuries. Daniel says the different parts of the statue are actually different kingdoms that will dominate the ancient world. Right? The first kingdom, this uh, golden head, that's you. That's, that's Babylon. That's you and all of your splendor. Um, the next one, and he, and he begins listing off the different kingdoms and so forth. The, the rock that comes through and knocks the statue over, that's the kingdom of God. And Daniel says that kingdom will endure forever. While other kingdoms and nations come and go, the kingdom of God, when it arrives, it will stay forever. And it is, by the way, this prophecy, a perfect preview of what actually did happen. First, the golden head, Babylon... Yeah, Babylon was around from about 636 B.C. Uh, to about 539 B.C. Um, and then another kingdom in the prophecy comes along. Remember the second part? Um, this is, would be Darius the Mede and the Medo-Persian Empire that lasted for a couple of hundred years till about 330 B.C. And then the Medo-Persian Empire would give way to another one, which according to verse 39 in the prophecy, this would be a kingdom greater than its predecessors that would dominate the whole world. This would be, maybe you've heard of a guy named Alexander the Great. This would be the Greek Empire that pretty much did govern the ancient world. Not only conquering it militarily, but also Greek culture, Greek science, Greek religion, Greek philosophy. They would dominate um, for centuries to come. And then when the Greek empire fell apart, guess what? Then came Rome. So we're getting down now to the feet, a uh, composite of different things, the iron and the clay, the Roman empire. This is the last empire before the boulder hits. Um, Rome was a composite in many ways. Um, first of all, just one of the things, if you read secular history books about the fall of Rome, one of the great challenges that eventually helped bring them down was there were just too many cultures. I mean, they conquered so much of the world that you had this culture over here with, with their gods, their religion, their economy, their customs, this other culture, this other, languages and cultures all mixing together, which eventually made the kingdom rather weak. But I think in a very real sense, in this vision, you have the iron and the clay, the two different substances. Rome, remember in your history book, Rome actually did become a divided kingdom, right? You had the Eastern Empire, you had the Western Roman Empire. And guess what showed up while Rome was ruling the world? The boulder that came rolling toward them, Jesus. This Galilean Jewish rabbi 
from the middle of nowhere comes onto the scene. This king, a descendant of David. And when everything is said and done, when the dust has settled, after Jesus collides with the Roman Empire, Roman empires were actually confessing their faith in Jesus and proclaiming him to be the king of kings. And while Rome has disappeared like dust in the wind, well, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is still going strong 2,000 years later. Like I said, pretty remarkable prophecy there in the book of Daniel. Now, the only people knew that knew about this insider stuff in Acts chapter 1 and 2, that the kingdom of God is being inaugurated, is this group of insiders that Jesus talks to. So on your outline this morning, the first bit of setting information, background information, write this one down. The kingdom of God prophesied about for centuries was being inaugurated right there in Acts chapter 2. So that's going on. That's part of the background here in Acts chapter 2. Big historical moment in history. Uh, a convergence of prophecy and reality right there in the city of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2. Now, the second part of the setting that really helps us understand what's going on in Peter's sermon. As we move into Acts chapter 2, we find that in Jerusalem there are people everywhere. Okay? The city is crowded and it's crowded with, it's very multinational. You've got people from coming, all these different countries are gathering in Jerusalem because there is a huge Jewish festival going on as Acts chapter 2 uh, unfolds. It is Shavuot, or we would call it, be more familiar with Pentecost. The festival of Shavuot or Pentecost is going on, and so pilgrims are coming back to Jerusalem. They've been there 50 days earlier for Passover. Now they're back for Shavuot. Now remember, so just 50 days earlier before Shavuot, at Passover, pretty big stuff was happening in Jerusalem. I mean, front page, the Jerusalem Post, Jesus, this very popular rabbi and miracle worker, was put to death by the Romans. And rumor has it, he was raised from the dead. That's what people are talking about, at least. And so 50 days later, after all of that at Passover, 50, just weeks later, here at Shavuot, once again, the city is swollen with travelers. And this time, it's, it's to celebrate the, the First Fruits Festival of Shavuot. So write this one down, second bullet point there, under the setting, the Harvest Festival of First Fruits, Shavuot, Pentecost. Um, has flooded the city of Jerusalem with pilgrims. So you've got this huge festival going on, and it is, it is a harvest festival, first fruits. It is also connected with the giving of the Torah, the law, um, to, to Moses and the people on Mount Sinai. The last big festival, again, um, Jesus was the front page news at Passover. The body disappears. Uh, there are rumors that he was raised from the dead. People, as they gather for Shavuot, the people are still talking about happen, what happened last time. Remember last time we were in Jerusalem? Remember all that crazy stuff that happened? And now here they are together at Shavuot. Another big thing happens, a really big thing. Peter and the other apostles are meeting in a public place. Maybe it was a terrace or a patio, but a very public, visible place. They are meeting, and all of a sudden, this multi-sensory 
experience takes place where there is a violent wind, there's a sound like you're in the middle of a, of a tornado or in the middle of a hurricane. Violent wind that's just kind of, you know, shaking everything. And so you've got that happening. And then over each one of the apostles, you have these tongues of fire. I think of, I mean, I don't know what it looked like, but in my mind's eye, I kind of imagine like, like lightning bolts over each one of the apostles. And so, obviously, everybody is looking that direction. God is doing something. Something major is happening here in Jerusalem. And so everyone begins to pay attention to what's happening there. Um, and then... And this may have surprised people as much as the shock and awe, multi, multi-sensory experience that, of the wind and the, and the tongues of fire. The apostles began to declare the glory of God in all of these different languages. Languages from all over the ancient world. You may be thinking, well, that doesn't seem like as big of a deal. Look, these guys were Galilean rednecks. Okay? And here they are speaking all of these languages perfectly. Think Barney Fife, okay? Barney Fife is speaking Latin, and then, now let's try out some French, and maybe a little Greek, a little Russian, a little Hebrew. They are speaking all of these languages, and people are like, they cannot possibly, this cannot be happening. But it was happening, and so everybody is paying attention and listening and wondering what is going to happen next. When Peter stands up and begins to preach this message, starting in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. They had seen it, they had witnessed it, it was amazing. This man was handed over by you. (laughs) By God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So these people who've traveled from far and near to Jerusalem for Shavuot, these pilgrims, are already remembering what happened the last time they were there. The last big feast day, just weeks ago at Passover, Jesus, the miracle-working rabbi, was crucified. And Peter's like, you remember him, right? And they're like, of course we do. Peter says he was God's anointed God confirmed his identity with these amazing miracles that many of you saw him perform. Then you remember how you turned him over to the, to the Romans and called for him to be killed and executed. And he was. And Peter says, but hang on there. This was God's plan all along. This was God's plan all along. And while he was put to death, He didn't stay dead. (laughs) He was raised from the dead. And now, check out what Peter does. Remember the theme we talked about, the kingdom of God. Well, Peter is going to make a point here 
using the most legendary king in the history of Israel. This guy is George Washington and Abraham Lincoln rolled into one. Of course, we're talking about King David. King David. Peter says, look, King David, the greatest king our nation has ever known up to this point, he died, he was buried, you can visit his tomb right now, some of them probably had during their Shavuot travels to Jerusalem. What about his descendant, Jesus? He died. In fact, just a few weeks ago he died. He was buried. In fact, his burial place was put under um, Roman guard. But what about Jesus? He's not in the grave. You can go and visit King David's grave. Centuries ago he passed away. His body is in there. If you go to where they buried Jesus, nobody is in there. No corpse is in there because he raised from the dead. And then Peter, I love this. Peter quotes from David. As David prophesied about Jesus in Psalm 16. So quoting from David in Acts 22, 27, Peter says, You will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Was David a great king? Absolutely. But he was... He was nothing compared to Jesus. One of them died and stayed dead. One of them was raised on the third day. And so Peter continues the sermon. Listen for the kingdom in the sermon. Listen for the kingdom. Get back to it in verse 29. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that our patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised an oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Kingdom. Kingdom. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. David did. Spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of this fact. We've seen him. We've had breakfast with him. We've hugged him. We have, we've hung out with Jesus after he was killed, and everybody saw it. He's alive, and we're witnesses of it. Verse 33. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Aha! A kingdom, like Daniel prophesied in Daniel 2, a kingdom that will endure forever needs a king who is everlasting, who will endure forever who death cannot conquer. We did not have that king in David. We do have that king in Jesus. Verse 36. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this, be certain of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And then Peter, in that, in that famous reply, 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. God loves people, all people. And God calls people, every man, woman, and child, to Jesus Christ. And those who accept Jesus find salvation. And so God called those people right there in that audience, thousands of people. He called them on that day of Shavuot, Festival of First Fruits. He called them to Himself. And thousands accepted the call. What will we do with the call that still echoes today? On that occasion, 3,000 baptized. The kingdom of God powerfully launched. Multi-sensory, shock and awe, attention-getting launch of the kingdom of God. Thousands respond. Peter's sermon is the first gospel sermon ever preached, since it is the first to be preached publicly after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as we conclude, this will go very quick. The bottom of the outline this morning. This is the festival of, festival of first fruits. So let's talk in this sermon about some of the firsts that happened in this sermon preached by Peter. For the first time, the gospel message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was proclaimed. For the first time. Now they had seen Jesus... They had broken bread with Jesus. They had prayed with Jesus. They had been taught by Jesus after the resurrection. They had witnessed Jesus risen from the dead. But in Acts chapter 2, as Peter stands up to preach, this is the first time this resurrection is being preached. Right? Where people are being told publicly about this resurrection. Second thing, for the very first time, Baptism in the name of Jesus was offered. Baptism in the name of Jesus was offered. Now sure, there had been plenty of baptisms, immersions before this time. But in Acts chapter 2, this is the first time anyone was ever baptized into the name of Jesus and participated in the tangible reenactment of his death burial and resurrection. As Paul is going to tell us later in Romans chapter 6, that's what Christian baptism is. You're not only calling on the name of Jesus, but you are reenacting the gospel. Okay? Jesus died for our sins. Jesus was buried, and three days later, Jesus rose out of that grave. When you're baptized, you accept that Jesus died for your sins and you are immersed in that watery grave and you are raised to a new life. So baptism takes on a whole new meaning. In Acts chapter 2, as Peter preaches after Jesus has been raised from the dead.
It was also the first time, next bullet point there, it was also the first time that forgiveness was offered to all. Remember what Peter says, baptized for the forgiveness of sins. This promise is for you, it's for your children, and it is for all who are far off. People had been forgiven before. Jesus had forgiven sins. God on various occasions had had forgiven people's sins. But in Acts chapter 2, with this international audience, there is an open invitation from the Lord for anyone and everyone, for all, to receive God's forgiveness. Even those who Peter says are far off. Next, for the first time, for the first time here in Acts 2, The Spirit of God was poured out. The Spirit of God was poured out. And we remember that shock and awe display of the tongues of fire and the the violent wind and everything. But more than that, as these 3,000 put their faith in Jesus and as they were immersed in baptism in the name of Jesus, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit for the first time. Verse 33, the Father gave Him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us. And verse 38, of course, the Spirit comes to dwell, to live in the heart of every believer. So in Acts 2, for the first time, the Holy Spirit is poured out on everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. And finally, for the first time, the kingdom community was formed. The kingdom community was formed. Acts 2.41, about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the launch of the church of Jesus Christ. This is the launch of the kingdom of God. The church, by the way, the church is the place where Jesus reigns. The church is the place where Rome doesn't reign, where the almighty dollar doesn't reign. It's the place where Jesus reigns, right? And this is the first time where these believers began to do life together in the kingdom of God. Weeks earlier, this is what I love about when you think about those, remember the background, the kingdom and the Shavuot, First Fruits Festival. Think about it for a second. Fifty days earlier at Passover, there was a seed planted in the ground. The body of Jesus was planted in the ground. And here we are 50 days later. And the first fruits, the harvest. Of course, the first of the first fruits, Jesus. Raised from the dead on the third day. He came out of that ground. And now we have just weeks later this awesome harvest of first fruits at the first fruits festival. As 3,000 put their faith in Jesus. I love how the message translates this. In Acts 2, 41 to 42, that day about 3,000 took him at his word, were baptized, and committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the life together, the common meal, and the prayers. They're together. They're eating together. They're studying the word together. They're doing life together in the kingdom. And so, from Acts chapter 1, where there are just 120 disciples. Luke tells us, Acts chapter 1, there are 120 disciples. Much fewer in Acts chapter 1 
than we have in this room right now. Just a fraction of who's in this room right now. From that to Acts chapter 2, 3,000 members of the church, 3,000 citizens of the kingdom where Jesus Christ reigns. Now, let me ask you this. Did they become witnesses? Did they ever become witnesses? The kingdom, the good news about Jesus would spread like wildfire all over the Roman Empire. Even the empire itself, in many ways, would convert to Christianity, would proclaim the lordship of Christ. (laughs) And even as Rome fell away and entered into the history books, the kingdom of Jesus Christ is still growing and reaching lives. And so with the backdrop of these history-rattling events, the collision between biblical prophecy and the reality of that moment in Jerusalem, we need to ask ourselves the same thing that each and every person did who was touched by the message that Peter preached. Remember their question? What should we do? Now what? I'm convicted. I believe. What do I need to do? Peter says in Acts 2.39 that the Lord is calling men and women. He's calling us to experience the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. He's calling us into this new kingdom This family of believers, He's calling us to be His witnesses to the rest of the world because God loves everybody. He's calling us. So what will we do with His call? For you this morning, it may be that first step, crossing the line of faith, calling on the name of Jesus and being baptized into Jesus. If the Lord is calling you to do that, what will you do? What will you do with that call? Is he calling you to say, look, is he calling you and saying, your priorities are messed up. You call yourself a Christian, you call yourself a believer, but I am way down on your list of priorities. Will you seek first my kingdom? And let me add everything else. Will you shift your priorities and put my kingdom first? Is that what he's calling you to do? And if it is, what are you going to do with it? Is he calling you to be a witness? A witness in your family? A witness in your workplace? A witness in the halls of your school or university? A witness in your neighborhood? A witness in the DFW mission field? Is he calling you to be his witness? And if he is, what are you going to do with that? Derek Broaddus got that call, didn't he? From the coach. And he got off the couch. And he got into the game. Jesus is calling us today to join him in his amazing kingdom project. Let's make that decision. Whatever that might be, however you, the Lord is calling you, respond to that calling this morning as we stand together. And